So you can be turning to Ephesians chapter 1 and listening to Russ's journey point. That journey point, if you're not familiar with it, is kind of just to set our theme of the week, our journey point of the week. And as uh, Russ shared with all of us, uh, his his five-minute, four-minute talk is a condensation of my sermon today. We did not, we don't, I don't uh, coordinate with the speaker, but it just was beautifully done, and uh, I think I just, it's going to tie in very well if you were listening to what Russ said. We're, we're so thankful for you and Gina, and to see your walk of faith over the last few years especially, uh, you came from a very dark place and have come into a wonderful relationship with God and have encouraged us all in that walk, and we thank you for it. Um, we're going to look at what I'm calling the price tag. I've struggled with this title because it's going to convey something maybe it shouldn't at first, but the price tag of salvation. And as I thought about the lesson this week, I thought about the Louvre Museum in Paris. I've had the, I, I think it's the privilege of going, and the pleasure of going there twice in my life and wandering through these halls of art. Now, I know that some here would have, if you went to Paris, you would have no desire to go to the loop. It would be the last place on your list of places to go. Uh, but some of you would go, well, you know, I'd like to go through there, and you'd walk through it, and you'd maybe choose two or three rooms and walk through it quickly and see what, what some of the paintings are. Some of you would take a quick, go straight to the Mona Lisa and look at that. And a lot of people I've talked to are walk away disappointed. I didn't know it was so small or, you know, whatever their view of that is. Leave disappointed. But some would go around slowly and examining the different pieces of art and enjoying them and looking at them closely, like this picture of, uh, that Norman Rockwell did of, of his son examining one of the paintings closely. And you, if you'll notice, the painting is examining him back at the same time. When we were there the first time, we'd walk through these. These halls are huge. They, they just, I don't know how long they are, 50 yards long? I don't know, long ways. And we got near the end, and I realized, oh, I did not see the one painting I really want to see. And it was Vermeer's Lace Maker. And I was disappointed. And she said, well, go back. And I looked at my little chart. And it's like three halls back, a long ways back. My feet were killing me. Her feet were killing her. She said, well, let, I'll just sit here and wait for you. Sit down on the bench and take your time. And so I walked and walked and walked all the way back. And I realized why I had missed it. I mean, it was, it's literally four inches by four inches or something like that. But I got to get, get up as close as that and look at the, the master artwork of Vermeer, study it closely, look at that little piece of thread that he had painted and marvel at his skill. And I'm telling you that not because I want to tell you about the artwork, but because that's how Bible study is too. There's some people in the world that don't care. They have no interest in Bible study, and I don't think that would count with most of the people here. 
But some need just a quick view, and there's value in every way that you study the Bible. You can just go through it quickly, do an overview of it. You don't know much about the Bible, so you're just trying to learn it, and you're just going through it quickly. And some will take a, a slower read of it and study of it. Um, I, I must have been in my early 20s before I realized, not because I hadn't been taught, but just because I hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me, I didn't get through my brain, that, the Bible, that Jesus is found in Genesis and Exodus. and Jesus ties the whole Bible together, and it first came to my realization when I was in my early 20s. And that's developed even over the years, even more, as I've seen this more and more. And I'm saying this because you don't need to know history to understand the Bible. You don't need to know the culture of the time to really understand it, or the setting, or the language, or any of these things. And it's helpful if you do. I mean, you can study more if you learn about, well, why did Abraham do what he did, the cultural setting of the, of the time, or the language there, or whatever. But don't be intimidated as we kind of look more in detail at the scripture. Don't be uh, put off by that because you're at the point where you're just looking at it in an overview. It's, it, all these ways are good. And I realize that, that I am honored by you to have the time to study God's word in a deeper way. Someone told me a couple of weeks ago, you get to study and discover things that I just don't have the time to do. And I said, thank you. Because you give me that opportunity, but it's also a responsibility for me to do that and then present it to you. This is what I do. I do not study the Bible in order to present a sermon. All right? I study the Bible each week to see how it relates to me. I choose the text, of course, to see how it applies to me and then on Sunday, yeah, I put it in an outline form so it has some kind of, you can understand it. But I then share what I've been learning, what I've put in, what I've seen I need to put in practice in my life, and then share that with you. I want to start in verse 6, and let's read verse 6 together, 6 and 7. And it's right in the middle of a sentence, but this whole thing is one sentence, uh, scholars tell us. Verses 3 through 14 is one sentence. But in verse 6, he says, To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance to the riches of God's grace. Then I'm going to read just the first part of verse 8. That he lavished on us. And some of your translation will have the period right there. I'm calling this the downward upward, verse 6. Now, as a congregation, we have been saying, as a group, we're going to look at this upward relationship that we have with God. We want to concentrate on our upward relationship with God. And that's good. And that's right. We should do that. But we need to realize that, our, that this relationship, this upward relationship, does not start with our effort to reach out to God. But it began with His downward reaching out to us. And I... I struggle with that, you know, our automatic concept of God is up above us, and yet the Bible teaches us He's among us, all right? But it gives us that, that direction in our mind. But as God's downward reaching to us, and this is important because 
we will believe that it's through our own personal energy, our own work, our own effort that we have a good personal relationship with God now because for the last three months, I've been getting up at 5 o'clock and I've been spending an hour of prayer and Bible study. I've really been putting my effort into this. And you see how suddenly we can turn around and our relationship to God is now based on how well I am doing and has nothing to do with what he's done for us. And so this is where Ephesians, first of all, brings us is in this downward reaching down to us. This relationship we have would be impossible if God had not reached down to us. And it can be summed up in one word, one biblical word, grace. Eleven times in the book of Ephesians, eleven out of twelve times it is used to refer to God. Only one time it refers to human grace. But eleven of the twelve times refers to God's grace to us. And we spent some time talking about, you know, in a concrete way, what does grace mean? Because it's so abstract. It's an abstract thought. And I know you don't remember from December when I talked about grace. I know you don't, some of you might, but, you know, we forget so quickly, myself included, what I said just a few months ago about grace, this concrete meaning of grace. But let me tell you what it, it means with a little bit of a different twist than what I shared with you in December. Grace to the Greeks meant anything that causes delight and enjoyment. If you enjoy something, if something delights you, any beauty, you go and watch, if you like art, you look at that, the paintings, and you get this feeling of, I love this. That's grace. All right? Some delight of your heart, that's uh, grace. Any kind of kindness or charitable uh, action. Someone gives you a gift and it causes delight in your life. That's grace. Anything that lifts up a person in heart and soul can be termed grace. Grace isn't so much a theological concept that we get really serious about and frown, but grace, grace should cause a delight in your heart. It should bring a smile to your face. Your heart should leap at joy at his kindness when you really start to understand the grace of God. And these first six verses of Ephesians shows God's grace as expressed to Christians and is available to anyone who responds to his call. It's available to all. But it's God's grace expressed to us. It's expressed in what he called spiritual blessings, all spiritual blessings. These blessings are comprehensive, every spiritual blessing. He has chosen to view those. Here's God's grace. God chose to view Christians, to view those who are in Christ as holy and blameless. And this concept changed my life when I realized that God in, in Christ has chosen to look at people as holy and blameless, even when they're not acting holy and blameless, which is an amazing and wonderful thought. In love, he brings us into his, his family. He adopts us. God adopts people. He, his motive is he's pleased to do this. God, you know, we, we have this idea of God as out there, and he's angry, and he's upset, and he's just uh, ready to 
cast people into hell, and he's being prevented by something right now. But, the, but this verse, these verses says it is God's pleasure. It's what he wants to do is to bring you into a relationship with him that is good and wonderful. Grace brings a smile to God's face, and it should bring a smile to yours. And all these things he keeps reminding us, not done by your power, it's done in Christ. And the result of this, if we just spend some time thinking about it, is the praise of his glorious grace. When we think of what he's done for us, we praise his glorious grace. That word praise, again, it's an abstract word, but it means to speak well of. It means to brag. We cannot help but talk about his grace. Here's the wonderful thing. Once you grasp what God has done for you, once you understand what God has done for you, you cannot help but share that with other people. This wonderful grace that he has given to you. He's brought you into his family. These blessings have, have thrilled us. They've given us great delight. We stand in awe and the wonder of what he has done. And yet at the same time, we bow down and wonder and worship at what he's done. These words here, literally, the literal translation is neat. To the praise of the glory of the grace of which he graced us. To the praise, and now what does it say? What's the English uh, that NIV? To the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us. But literally is to the praise of the glory of the grace in which he graced us. He has, uh, uh, he has graced us. One man wrote, he begraced us with grace. We have an abundance of grace, a demonstration of this grace. Uh, John talked about in the first chapter of, of, of his gospel, grace upon grace. This is what he's talking about. And so we look in wonder, upward in wonder, at the downward outpouring of his grace. A grace that is more of God giving himself than giving things to us. Yes, we have some things, but it is him that we have. His grace is expressed in who he is. His character that includes what he does. And in verse 7 through 10, we're going to see that all these blessings, all this grace is centered in Christ. And we'll begin to see how this personally affects us. Our beginning point, verse 7. Verse 7 tells us our beginning point. And he uses this word redeemed. Here's the world story. All people are basically good. All people, all the, the only thing that people need is care, opportunity, good government, good education, and the world is going to get better and better. That's the gospel of the world. The Bible teaches that people, all people are prone to evil. Everyone sins. We all fall short of God's glory. We are lost. We're in darkness. We're in slavery to death and sin. And there's nothing we can do to fix this. And the world is offended by that message. They're hurt by that message. And history has shown that the world will kill you for saying they are bad and in need of a savior. Which proves they are bad and in need of a Savior, if you think about it. I mean, think about that. 
They're so offended that you would say they are bad and need a savior, they'll kill you to stop you from saying it, which only proves they need a savior. How we receive, how do we do it? This is where God enters our life. This is the point of his entry into our life. He takes care of our sin problem. He takes care of our death problem. He's come to give us life, it, that he calls it the life that is truly life. And how we receive these blessings that he's talked about, how we are chosen, how we are adopted in Christ, how this beginning point uh, starts with us in Christ, given, to, uh, given by God in Christ, is in this one word, redeemed. We sang it several times. Russ mentioned the word redeemed at least once. I caught him saying at least once. What does that word redeem mean? He has redeemed us, he says. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In both the Old and the New Testament, first century world, this word meant delivered by payment. A price was set, usually for a slave or it could be for a prisoner. How, how do you get out of prison? Well, back in those days, you could pay someone's. It was not only bail. You could pay for their freedom. A, a price was set. This is what it's going to cost to get a person out of prison, to get a person out of slavery. And when that was paid by a friend or a relative, it was called being redeemed. The biblical concept is that everyone is a slave to sin. Everyone's a slave to the world and to Satan. We're in bondage to the law. We bear the burden of keeping the law and the penalty of the law when we break it. When you break the law, you have to pay the penalty. And so we're all in trouble. And so it's under this power of death. We're under this power of death. And there's no way to escape. And I have taught with people who deny the concept of sin, but they cannot deny the concept of death. Because it's here. It's right here with us. We, we see it in our own bodies. And so we say, okay, let's pretend there's no sin. There's nothing bad. But we're dying. How do we fix that? How do we fix that problem? And there's no human answer. God has come to fix the death problem also. And there's no payment within ourselves. We cannot pay to get out of death. We cannot pay to get out of sin. And so the Bible says Jesus came to make that payment for us. Matthew chapter 28, 20 and verse 28, he said, The Son of Man has come to give his life as a ransom, a payment for many. That's what Jesus came to do. And then in 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 19, he says, Don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? He says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. There was a payment on your head. And the payment was, was met. You were bought with a price. And here in Ephesians it says, and it is through his blood. That's what paid the price, his blood. And we say, why blood? Why blood? The concept of redemption, the concept of the cross is going to be all throughout Ephesians. And so we're not going to go into great detail why blood, we will touch on it and build on it as we go. This section is just kind of a panoramic view and just used it one, one time. And so we're not going to go into any great depth, but I do want to share you the reason why it's blood is based on three concepts, value, justice, and ownership. Let's look at those. Value. What you pay for something 
shows its worth. Or at least it shows what you think it's worth. Everyone here has bought something. Probably everyone here has bought something this week. You exchanged money for, you exchanged a value for what you said, yes, that hamburger is worth to me at this moment a dollar or 50 or what, three dollars or whatever you paid for it. You might pay today around $1,300 for an ounce of gold, but you wouldn't pay $1,300 for a rock I picked up in the gutter on the way to church, right? Because you would say it's not what? Worth it. God is showing you, this is why blood, this is why the blood of Jesus, what you are worth in his sight. First Peter, and I have part of that on the screen, I'm going to turn to verse 18 of chapter 1. And he says there, for you know, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from our forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Gold could not buy you. Silver could not buy you. Because you're worth more than gold and silver. Over in Hebrews chapter 9, verse, oh, this, this section, all of Hebrews is great, but 9 through 10 talk about this whole section about this value. But 9 verse, um, let me see here, verse 13, he says, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences so that we may serve the living God. And he's saying blood, the blood of bulls and goats wasn't enough. You could sacrifice a hundred cows. It's not enough to redeem you, to buy you back to God. When you are redeemed, whatever redeems you sets your price. If you are redeemed... Buy a chicken, you will live like a chicken. All right? If you're redeemed by a goat, you will live like a goat. But if you're redeemed by the Son of God, you'll live like a son of God. If you understand what's redeemed you. Not only is it shows our value, but the blood of Jesus shows justice. Sin must be paid for. The balance of justice, the scales must be balanced. They must be met. And, and a lot of times people are critical of God and they say, well, you know, why can't God just forgive? Why can't he just say, I forgive you? Why can't God who said, let there be light and there was light, why can't he just suddenly say, hey, let there be forgiveness and there's forgiveness? You would think that God could do that. Why all this blood and the cross and things like that? And yet, we do not hold ourselves to the same standard. We t say to God, why can't you say, just, I forgive you, when you yourself are offended by someone and you can't just say, well, I forgive you. You can't do it. And yet, God, we try and make God do something we can't do ourselves. Shedding blood shows the depth of the problem of sin. 
Sin destroys everything it touches. It breaks life beyond repair. It kills, it hinders, it weakens, it enslaves. It enslaves our own lives and our relationships that we have. It hurts relationships with others. And therefore, it cannot just be dismissed by a wave of the hand and say, oh, it's trivial, you're forgiven. Because it's worse than that. It's a terrible thing. It's like having cancer and the doctors say, drink an extra cup of water every day. You go, what? Well, water is good for you. Drink an extra cup. And you go, no, no, this problem is greater than that. I need more than just water here. I need some, something powerful to take care of this problem. And so it takes something far more powerful than sin to overcome it. And it takes this justice, it takes this redemption to put everything back in order. We want life back in order. When relationships are broken, when problems happen, when sin occurs, we say we, something has to happen to bring this back together, to, to, to make the balance scales even. If an employee took money from the cash register, $20, and the, the boss said, that's okay, you're forgiven. The next day, they'll probably take 40 right? And if the boss said, that's okay, you're forgiven. And then they'd say, well, every day I'm cleaning out the cash register. <laughs> and if the boss said, well, you're forgiven, what would happen to that business? It would die within a week. It would be gone. There would be no cash flow if you, have, if you know anything about business. It would not work. And so we understand that. So we also understand, we should understand, when that $20 is taken, $20 put back in there does not even the scales. A lot of things have been broken when you take that money. Trust has been broken. How do you rebuild trust? The, the, depending on how long the money was taken and hurt the business, Interest needs to be paid on that. I mean, there's a lot of factors in here that it's not just, I just did one little bad thing, but a lot of bad things happen by that one action. Amen. And so in the same way that that money must be paid back and more to balance it in our sins, something has to fix us, something big and powerful. God must set things right. God looks at it and says, I must balance the book. I must see that justice is done. And if God does not see that justice is done, listen, God sins. And God cannot sin. That's why God just can't say, well, it's okay, let it go. Because God would not be God. God would actually sin if you just let sin go. Just like if, you, if, if the boss of your, your, your employer said, oh, it's okay. It would break everything. Genesis 18 Verse 25, Abraham was bold, and he said, Would not the judge of the earth do what is right? We live in a broken world and broken lives. Will not the judge of the earth do right? And the answer is yes. And there's only way to make things right, only one way to make things right. There's only one thing of such great value that it can pay your redemption, and that's the blood of Jesus. Romans chapter 3 brings us out in a wonderful way. Chapter 3, we always read verse 23, and then we just we don't read 24. I don't know why. Verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a great verse. And it's a great verse to convict us of, the, of our sins. And that is true, but listen to verse 24. If I can find it. And... 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came from Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians. That's what we're talking about right now. It says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. And then if you go down to 26, he did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So to be just and the one who justifies. That's a huge sermon right there. I'm going to just read it to you. That's all I'm going to do. Justice met. Redemption also shows ownership. The shedding of blood shows that Jesus cannot be just a great teacher. Jesus was not just a great teacher. Jesus did not come to give us the seven ways to live a perfect life. You know, you can go to a bookstore. You can go to the self-help section. You can find ten ways to live a great life or whatever. And you can take those ten ways or eight ways or 15 ways, whatever they are, and stick them up on your mirror and go through them every day. Fine. That's okay. And you can do those things and improve your life and never meet the author. Never have a relationship with the author. Our fundamental need is not learning or a teaching on how to live. Our fundamental need is on God, having a relationship with God. It's not like I have a problem in my life. I'm having a problem in my marriage, so I turn here in the Bible and I find God's answer to my problem to change my life. My fundamental problem, my fundamental need is God himself. Everything wrong with me. Everything wrong with me is because I'm not rightly related to God. It's not that I don't know. That's the thing. Most people do know. Most problems that people come to me with and they talk about, they know what the problem is. Now, they take the problem and blame the other person, but they know the problem. They know the answer, but their problem is their relationship with God. That's the fundamental problem, and that's why redemption is first. Redemption sets the relationship correctly. Blood purchased me. I am not my own. I no longer live for myself. I have a new master. Lord and servant relationship. That's what redemption does. He bought me. He owns me. He is now my Lord. It paid for the guilt. He paid for the slavery, the justice. He brought me into a right relationship with him. We're now in a proper relationship. He is master. He is Lord. I am servant. And my slavery to sin is transferred to a relationship with him. In this little section in Ephesians, in the first chapter or so, in verse 2, verse 3, verse 15, verse 17, he says, The Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus. And we miss it. We read over it so quickly. We're so used to it. But it's saying, He is Lord. He is Master. You are servant. And the last three verses of the chapter, if you missed it, if you miss the Lord part, he says, He is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. He's just saying, listen, I wanted to explain he's over everything. He is Lord of everything in heaven, on earth, 
in the future, in the past, in the present. He is Lord. That's who he is. Fanny Crosby was a songwriter in the 1800s. I think she grasps this. We've sang the song. How many times have we just kind of run through the song and haven't listened to what we're singing? Redeemed. How I love to proclaim it. That's praise. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child, and forever I am. Redeemed, redeemed. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, you want to sing it. Redeemed, redeemed. His child, and forever I am. When we realize who God is, His glorious grace of bringing us into a safe relationship with Him, when we realize the tremendous cost of that, the great price that He paid to redeem us, the reasonable response is to submit to Him, submitting to His love, His sacrifice, Submitting to the one who rescued us from certain and eternal death is easy when we keep forever before us the blood of the Lamb. He redeemed us. He paid the price. And then he says he forgave us, which means he let it go. He let our sins go. He released our sins. He no longer holds our sins over our head. He no longer holds our sins against us. We live in a relationship of Jesus as king and brother, master and teacher, savior and redeemer. Let's learn how to respond to that glorious grace. If we can help you in any public way, we're going to give you that opportunity.